I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, this isn't Lee Lonsberry. This is Connor Boyack, president of Libertas Institute. Standing in for Lee as a guest host today so he can take some well-needed vacation. Excited to be with you and continue the conversation from past segments. We're going to switch it up a little bit, though. So Libertas Institute is a free market think tank and working on Capitol Hill with elected officials to work on regulatory and economic issues. There's been an interesting trend. In past years, in fact, every year of our existence that our organization has been around, there has been a company that was shut down or fined or otherwise prevented from serving their customers because of a law or because of a regulation. In a free market, pro-business state, we continue to struggle. Of course, the story of Tesla is well known, that they had to go to court to try and even be able to sell cars in Utah. Zenefits is another example. When Uber and Lyft came to town, drivers were being fined thousands of dollars. Airbnb, food trucks. Most recently, it was Turo. I actually just used Turo a couple weeks ago. It's like Airbnb, but for uh, vehicles. So anyone can uh, share or rather rent their vehicle with someone else. And in Turo, uh, people were using this to, to share their cars with travelers at the airport and then getting fined a ton of money because that was illegal. Why is it that these innovative companies, uh, entrepreneurial business models, are getting a fist rather than an open handshake from the state? Uh, Why can't we do better in a free market, pro-business state? Joining us on uh, the guest line to talk about this topic and some reform that's coming that may help is Chris Koopman, the executive director of the Center for Growth and Opportunity in Utah. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Chris, maybe before we dive into the topic, I actually want you to give a a brief plug for the Center for Growth and Opportunity. You're at Utah State University, and I feel like not a lot of people have heard about your group. So tell us who you are, what you do, and then let's unpack the topic. Yeah, so here at the Center for Growth and Opportunity, we are a research center housed in the Huntsman School of Business focused on public policy research in three core areas, tech and innovation, immigration, and environmental stewardship. So a lot of the areas and the policy conversations that are happening, not just in Utah, but across the country, we at the Center for Growth and Opportunity are involved in in producing cutting-edge policy research from the economics point of view. But we also fund students. So we have 60 student fellows, masters and undergraduate students that we fund here at the Center for Growth and Opportunity to pursue undergraduate degrees in economics and business and finance or graduate degrees in data analytics or financial econ. So for, for anyone interested in pursuing a, an undergraduate or a graduate degree in business or a related area at Utah State University, the Center for Growth and Opportunity has uh, plenty 
of uh, opportunities for you to get support, but then also be involved in our research. So you're, you're housed in Utah, you're focused across the country, but also in our backyard. Our groups have worked together uh, in the past on some of these uh, tech and innovation issues. And of course, a lot of them are hot topics. You look at right now, Section 230, some of you may have heard of President Trump randomly tweeting about this like statute in federal law that no one has heard of that suddenly everyone now knows about about you know social media companies should they have immunity what does that mean are they platforms are they publishers there's been congressional hearings these tech and innovation issues actually have a lot of influence over our lives because of how much we're utilizing these technologies and how much these businesses are trying to serve us and compete with one another so uh, Chris as I set up the the stage for this conversation Utah has struggled with this a bit of course we're not unique you know every state has these regulatory problems as you think first at a 30,000 foot level about you know these regulations and laws that were passed years ago decades ago often uh, what is it about that type of regulatory kind of inertia that inhibits the innovation and the technology and the developments that we all like to see. Talk to me broadly about like that tension between these innovators finding themselves hitting the wall against these antiquated policies. Yeah, it, it, and I think it, it, it's a, a perfect juxtaposition for, for what we're facing in the 21st century is you have laws, regulations, and, and rules that have sometimes been on the books for decades and decades and decades that are influencing how some of today's most innovative companies go about providing their service or doing their business or interacting with consumers. And I, I think the easiest way to, to think about this is a regulation is a, a snapshot in time. It is a policymaker's response to something that is happening in that policymaker's time and place. So regulations written in the 60s and 70s were written for the 60s and 70s. They were not written for you know, 2020 or 2019 or 1996, for that matter. <laughs> and so this tension, quite frankly, is, is between rules that were written in a day and in a time when our world looked dramatically different than it did today and trying to force the, the market and these innovators to fit the regulatory structure as opposed to using this innovation as an opportunity to reevaluate what regulations we have on the books and whether or not they're continuing to serve their intended purposes. Uh, I really like how you put that. You know, at the time with limited knowledge based in, let's say, the 1970s, maybe it made sense to regulate something a certain way, but then things change. I'll use an example. Uh, here in Utah, there's a great company called Neighbor. And they're kind of the Airbnb, but for storage space. So if you've got a you know basement, if you've got garage space, an RV pad, you can throw it up on Neighbor's website and uh, list whatever you want. Or Homey is another Utah example, right? They're kind of disrupting the real estate industry. They're doing things differently than they've been done. And it's companies like this that find that the regulations that they have to navigate around weren't artfully suited for their slightly different business model. You know, as, as, as Utahns, we like to think of our state as being pro-business and free market, but it's unfortunate that these entrepreneurs so often uh, struggle to, uh, you know, adapt uh, and, and find a path to the market where their, their business model can thrive and, and kind of the, the round peg in a square hole, right, try and fit in, inside these systems. What are some, some kind of, you know, your organization has been doing this research uh, it seems like for decades people have been talking about regulatory reform, right? We just we need to address the issue. But when you look at the the list of regulations, they're insanely long, right? Far longer than 
than congressional mandates or state legislative law. Um, and, and so, you know, what, what has been done in this regard? We've got a minute left before the break. We're going to continue this conversation. But what have people tried in the past and how's that really worked? Yeah, so I think there there are two that that jump out immediately when you you ask a question like that in terms of regulatory reform. The first of which is regulatory sunsetting, that is writing your laws and your regulations in such a way that over time they expire, and then you have to reevaluate them and pass them again. And the second one, and this is more of a recent trend, is regulatory sandboxing, and it's creating spaces with temporary freezes on regulation that allow innovators to demonstrate that they can provide a new service or a new approach to an existing service in a way that achieves the same intended goal that the regulation was trying to achieve when it was passed years or decades ago. Now, I'll say about the sunsetting, having worked on this on other issues, uh, what often happens is, you know, inertia kicks in. The legislature is very busy. They get a sun a sunset review. Okay, it's sunsetting. It's time to review it. And then they just, you know, kind of rubber stamp it. Nothing really happens. So I think what the listeners need to be most excited about then is the second option. On the flip side of the break, we're going to talk about this weird term called a regulatory sandbox. But more importantly, what it means for you using all the favorite apps that you enjoy and the gig economy and making our world a better place, how we can fix regulations in a way that will be friendly to innovators and entrepreneurs. Stick with us on the flip side of the break. We're talking with Chris Koopman, Center for Growth and Opportunity. You're listening to KSL News Radio. Welcome back to the program. This is Connor Boyack with Libertas Institute, guest hosting for the for the day. We invite you to weigh in on this conversation through the Utah Community Credit Union text line. You can text your comments to 57500. We're joined as we were before the break with Chris Koopman, Center for Growth and Opportunity. Chris, thanks for sticking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> so we were talking about how to actually kind of protect the free market in Utah. We think of ourselves as a pro-business state, and yet all the entrepreneurs are hitting their heads up against the wall so often with uh, outdated regulations or with regulatory systems that kind of prevent them from uh, growing. You mentioned uh, two approaches. Uh, one is sunsetting regulations, which I know a lot of people get excited by. Let's make these temporary. Let's have them expire. Uh, I, before the break, said that in my observation, part of the problem is that when these sunsets come, it's very easy legislatively to just batch renew them and have a bill that says, okay, we'll just continue all these and, and that the sunsets don't end up being very meaningful. So where I want to spend a little bit of time with you is on this second idea. It's a newer idea. Uh, some other countries have adopted this. And uh, Utah has the opportunity to actually be a pioneer, a leader on this topic of regulatory sandboxes. Boil down for us in non-academic terms, uh, <laughs> in, in a, a simple way, Chris, what, what would a regulatory sandbox do? What, what is it? So, you know, in, in its simplest sense, you can think of a, a regulatory sandbox as a space where regulators push pause on regulation and allow innovators to demonstrate the product or service that they want to bring to market in a controlled way. That allows for innovators and entrepreneurs to demonstrate that they can achieve the same ends as the regulation is trying to achieve. You know, regulations, after all, uh, for better or for worse, are almost always intended to protect consumers, right? You can think of the regulations that Homey, for example, is running up against with, you know, the regulation of selling homes through a, re a realtor. In those instances, those are mostly put in place to protect people from bad actors. If Homey can demonstrate that 
it can provide the same service without people being harmed, homies should have the opportunity to do that. And in many ways, that's what a regulatory sandbox is. It's a regulator saying we're going to push pause on our regulation for a specific you know, type of service, maybe in a limited geographic or in a, a smaller area for qualified consumers and producers, and allow for those innovators to demonstrate that they can do what we expect them to do, and that's provide high-quality, low-cost products and services to, to their customers without the, 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 the negative drawbacks that may have uh, required the regulation in the first place. So in a nutshell, uh, innovative company X uh, comes along and finds that the state is coming after them. They get a cease and desist letter. They get a fine. They get a notice of some sort. They can basically apply to enter this sandbox, which would be created, this kind of testing environment, where they would be shielded mm -hmm. from that enforcement so that they could continue to show, hey, look, we're safe. Let's go get that law fixed while we continue to operate. Chris, how I have kind of thought about it is with kind of FDA clinical trials, right? There's a new medication. They always start at that phase one assessment, right? Is this going to kill anyone? No? Oh, okay, good. Now let's test and see if it's effective based on the medical claims being made and, and go do the science. Same way with these sandboxes. It's like, hey, these companies, are they safe? Is anyone being hurt, defrauded, right? Is there any risk? No? Okay, let's let this company continue to innovate. Let's let Tesla sell their cars. Let's let Airbnb people share their home. Let's let, you know, homies sell houses. Let's let Uber drivers ferry people around while we then go work with the legislature or the city council or whoever and get this fixed. It seems to me, Chris, that this is a much more proactive and friendly approach to entrepreneurship. Uh, why do you, like, give us kind of the national uh, snapshot. Are these sandboxes being used anywhere? Yeah, so the, the first sandbox in the United States was instituted by the federal government, actually, the, the, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So most of these sandboxes over the last eight years, it was 2012, when the CFPB released their, their, their fintech sandbox. And most of them are in the financial technology or fintech space. So you can think a lot of the regulations we have about the way people can interact with one another and their banks is pretty, pretty heavily regulated. So for a number of years, this was an opportunity to spur innovation in the, in the financial industry and allow things like cryptocurrency companies or new digital payment systems, different other um, innovative products to be released in a limited way and really test them out in, in a market space. So since then, you've seen the proliferation of these in a limited, limited set of, of instances. Arizona, for example, passed the first fintech sandbox and actually really the first sandbox by a state just, just a couple years ago, two years ago, really, is when they passed it. Um, since then, sandboxing has, has become more of, a, more of a tool for regulators to sort of test the theory behind their regulations, right? So you can see, even in Utah, for example, there's a, a, a fintech sandbox, there's a, uh, a legal services sandbox now, there's a drone sandbox, the FCC has chosen um, Salt Lake as a sandbox for telecom innovation. The, the, it, we're really starting to see these used as a tool to, uh, to test whether or not these outdated regulations that are really, really putting stress on innovation 
and, and really holding back entrepreneurs in the United States as a tool to test whether or not we can continue to progress forward without letting 1965 dictate what happens in 2021. So that's a that's a great way to, to put an exclamation point there on the end of that. Uh, Utah, you mentioned, has a legal services sandbox. This is the the courts on their own took this initiative to find ways to reduce uh, kind of uh, barriers to entry, especially to represent lower income people and reduce the cost of legal representation, which is awesome. And a lot of people are excited about that. The legislature, as you noted, did pass a sandbox for fintech. So for people like what is fintech, like cryptocurrencies is a good example, right? These are kind of a new dynamic thing like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, a lot of people are going to be excited. I just said Ethereum on the radio. Um, you know, these new innovative cryptocurrencies are... Uh, a different approach and have it, you know, don't really fit the regulations of, as you say, 1965. And so the fintech sandbox is an opportunity for these companies to still do business and still go out and, and serve and, and help people. The Utah legislature also passed a sandbox for uh, the insurance industry. Uh, there was a gentleman in Pleasant Grove who was uh, trying to start a company, invested a lot of money in it. Uh, he wanted to do kind of like a cost-sharing program where, uh, you know, rather than having this massive expense when your transmission goes out, it's almost like a little bit of insurance. You could put in a little bit of money, and it would kind of pool the money with other customers, and you'd share that uh, money when you needed it for your car. And the insurance commission shut him down and said, nope, this doesn't match our insurance regulations. And unfortunately, he was trying to do you know this business before the insurance sandbox got off the ground. Here in Utah, this entrepreneur was shut down because his innovative approach didn't really fit that, that round peg into the square hole. I can never remember if it's a square peg in a round hole. I guess they're interchangeable. So, Chris, my take is that we can continue to pick at this. Right, pick which favored industries are going to get the blessing of a sandbox to help the entrepreneurs in that particular niche. It seems to me, and we only got one minute left, that we need a, a broad sandbox. We need kind of a holistic approach. Do you share that view? And if so, what excites you about this kind of broad economy-wide sandbox program? So a couple things excite me. The first thing is is none of us really know what the future holds. And I certainly don't expect regulators to know what the future holds. So having a broad economy-wide sandbox allows for any innovator and entrepreneur to come in and demonstrate that they can make things better for people without having to incur all of the cost of complying with outdated, outmoded regulations. And second, it continues to make a state like Utah a, an attractive place for innovators to come and test their ideas. There are a number of states thinking through you know, very broad, generalized sandboxes, and the first state to do it will get all the advantages of being first. So Utah can continue to attract the best and brightest here and continue to be a leader, not just in innovation, but what good government does look like. I couldn't have said it better myself, so we'll end it there. Chris Koopman, Center for Growth and Opportunity, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Connor. Stick with us on the other side of the segment, guys. With two days until Thanksgiving, we are going to get into the real story of Thanksgiving. It's not what they told you in elementary school. Not at all. The story is far more interesting. You're going to learn it on the other side of this break. Stick with KSL News Radio. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. 
Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.